Hello and welcome to the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim, and recently we did a Toasted Tale live. This was recorded on, I believe, the 20th of January. As part of that segment, we looked at that day in history, found a few interesting points in time that I was going to throw into the mix and consider for a future episode. Throughout this, we found some really interesting historical moments, and we were able to talk about them with the people listening in live. One particular event really stuck out in my mind, however, and that is the subject for today's show. This being the 1778 exploration by British explorer James Cook, where he landed on Waimea, on Kauai Island, and becoming the first European to visit Hawaii. That's the seed for today's episode. Now let's find the story. Firstly, let's start off with the early life of James Cook. Let's get a better understanding for the man. He was not some kind of silver spoon-fed aristocratic type who was gifted a boat and told to sail the oceans. He was the son of a farmhand migrant from Scotland. And even though came from humble beginnings, showed signs of an inquiring and able mind. His father was able to find funding for his schooling, and he spent his early teen years on the farm his father worked on, but also spent time in a brief apprenticeship in a general store in a coastal village north of Whitby, UK, which brought him into contact with ships and the sea. At the age of 18, in the year 1746, he was on the waves, working as an apprentice to a well-known Quaker ship owner, John Walker of Whitby. At 21, he was already rated an able seaman, and split his time between repairing boats, being on the water, training his skills as a sailor, and then also, when offshore, studying mathematics by night. The North Sea waters where he worked were dangerous and ill-marked, offering Cook splendid practical training. The young man who learned his seamanship there had little to fear from any other seas. He was offered his first taste of command in 1755. This was of one of the bark ships from the company he worked for. But after this, and after eight years at sea, Advancement in this particular line was becoming stale for Cook, so he decided to go to the next level, joining the Royal Navy. Offering more advancement, more interesting endeavours, but probably more danger, this was right up James Cook's alley. He saw action in the Bay of Biscay during the Seven Years' War between Great Britain and France, and was given command of one of the captured ships that took part in the siege of Louisbourg. There was a lot of action to be seen for the British Royal Navy around these times, and the experiences that young sailors would have been able to gather would have been varied and far-flung. He was definitely a rising star, but it's around this time as well we see another side of James Cook. He was not only just a sailor, of growing renown, but also an amateur scientist. In 1766, he observed an eclipse of the sun, 
and sent the details to the Royal Society in London. An unusual activity for a non-commissioned officer, but displayed a boldness that would characterise his life in general. In the year 1768, the Royal Society, in conjunction with the Admiralty, was organising the first scientific expedition to the Pacific, and the rather obscure 40-year-old James Cook was appointed commander of the expedition. This first voyage, which started in 1776 and ended three years later in 1771, departed England on the Bark-class ship the HMS Endeavour, and it sailed to Tahiti. It was there that the astronomer on board Charles Green observed the transit of Venus, and from there followed his directive to search for the unknown and undiscovered land to the south, until they reached New Zealand. There he spent six months charting the coast before departing for the east coast of the land known as New Holland. This of course is modern day Australia. He followed the east coast towards the north, charting as he went and claiming possession of the country on behalf of the British Crown. Saying he discovered these two countries is incorrect however. There were other explorers who had reached these lands before, and also there were Aboriginal natives who were on these islands for thousands of years and probably didn't realise they needed discovering at all. The second voyage was once again a grand undertaking, taking place between 1772 and 75. On this trip, they were hoping to go further south than ever before. The aim was Antarctica. They also wanted to test out clocks on the ship, which were a special type chronometers, which would function despite the motion of the ship. Apparently that was a major issue for sailors at the time. Even though he brought many different clocks with him, only a few worked properly and he did find his favourite, which would then become more commonly used. During the voyage, Cook sailed further south than any explorer had before, but he did not find Antarctica, as ice and weather conditions blocked his way. During his exhaustive search of the Pacific, he found or visited a number of islands such as Easter Island, the Tongan Group, New Caledonia, and South Georgia. The third, and what would turn out to be Cook's final grand voyage, was an attempt to find a route from the Pacific to the Atlantic round the top of North America. This was a vital trade and transport link that many of the major powers at the time had wanted access to, because currently the only way to get to one ocean to the other was either from the south of America or across land. After observing an eclipse of the sun from the island Cook named Christmas Island, he and his crew became the first Europeans to find the Hawaiian Islands. They made a short stop for water and went on with searching for the Northwest Passage. They unfortunately did not meet any success, and the ships and the crew needed to rest. Cook therefore sailed back towards the Hawaiian Islands landing at Kialakakula Bay 
on the big island of Hawaii. At first, everything went well, and the sources state that the people, the natives of Hawaii, and the crew and their captain, Cook, had a good relationship for most of the time. This tide started to turn, however, when the explorer's ship's foremast broke, and so they needed to return to the island for repairs. Tensions rose, and a number of quarrels broke out between the Europeans and the Hawaiians. This included the theft of wood from a burial ground that was taken under Cook's orders. In retaliation, an unknown group of Hawaiians took one of Cook's small boats, and the relationship between the islanders and the European sailors devolved from there. The story goes that Cook formulated a plan, and this was to kidnap and ransom the King of Hawaii, Kalaniapalu, in order to enforce peace between all groups. The following day, on the 14th of February 1779, just a few weeks after returning to Hawaii, Cook marched through the village to retrieve the king. He took him by his own hand and led him away. One of Kalaniopolu's favourite wives, Kane Kapole, and two chiefs approached the group as they were heading to the boats. They pleaded with the king not to go. An old kahuna, which was a priest of sort, began chanting rapidly while holding out a coconut, attempting to distract the crew and cook long enough for a large crowd of Hawaiians to begin to form at the shore. At this point, the king began to understand that Cook was his enemy, and as Cook turned his back to help launch the boats, he was struck on the head by a villager, and then stabbed to death as he fell on his face in the surf. He was then struck by clubs, and a number of his attendants were also struck down as well. The Hawaiians carried his body back towards town, and apparently it was still visible from the ships through the spyglasses they had on board. It was believed that during the fracas, four marines, Corporal James Thomas, Private Theolopis Hinks, Private Thomas Fatchett, and Private John Allen were also killed, and two others were wounded in the confrontation. Even with this spurt of violence, the Hawaiian Islanders still held Cook in high esteem. They followed their regular burial practices they would use for their own people, and prepared his body with funeral rites usually reserved for the chiefs and highest elders of their society. His body was disemboweled and baked to facilitate the removal of flesh. The bones were carefully cleaned for preservation, as religious icons in a fashion somewhat reminiscent of the treatment of European saints in the Middle Ages. Some of Cook's remains thus preserved were eventually returned to his crew for a formal burial at sea. James Cook's death was met with grief back in Britain. He left a legacy of knowledge about foreign lands, and solved many of the questions about the southern continent for the people back in the UK. 
His exploration of places that were formerly unknown to Britain, and his territorial claims contributed directly to the growth of the British Empire. Now in modern times, empire is a quite rightly dirty word, but at the time, it was the cutting edge of what a nation was forming itself around. He also did a lot of this whilst improving navigation, cartography, the standards of which you should care for your men at sea, and how important it is to build relationships with indigenous peoples around the world, both friendly and hostile. James Cook was one of the front runners in tackling scurvy among sailors, often a decimator of crews taking long voyages. Very few, if any, of his crew died of this illness. This was because, in addition to ensuring the cleanliness and ventilation of his crew's quarters, Cook insisted on an appropriate diet that included cress, sauerkraut, and a kind of orange extract. The health in which he maintained his sailors changed the whole Royal Navy and its ability to operate across the globe. Cook changed the sailing game at a time where it was really heating up. Some of the actions he took changed the world forever, and sailing for many years to come. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. Individuals like James Cook, from our modern perspective, can be skewed into being seen as just long arms of the evil colonialists of the age. And I don't think there's any arguing that colonialism that happened in those times was negative from our standpoint. But I feel like it is important to appreciate the character of a man leading individuals in these perilous expeditions, and also the leaps forward that these discoveries on trips like this made. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, then we release new episodes every Tuesday. The best way for you to have these shows sent straight directly to you is to follow and subscribe to the Toasted Tale podcast on whichever podcasting platform you prefer. If you enjoy listening to live broadcasting, then you can tune in to my Toasted Tale Live, which goes out at 4pm weekdays, and it's a bit more rough and ready, and allows you to become part of the conversation. Outside of this, you can also get in contact via Facebook or Twitter. My handle is at podcasttale, and it's there where new episodes and also everything I find interesting get posted. That's at podcasttale for more. I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Thank you again for listening. My name's been Jim, and I will speak to you again for another toasted tale by the fireside.